Hi, welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We're presented with the support of Weatherhead Executive Education at Case Western Reserve University. A full field seeking the nomination for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by incumbent Senator Rob Portman, who's chosen not to run for re-election. Here on The Landscape, we're speaking to all the candidates between now and the primary, which happens in May of next year. Today, we're glad to be joined by Mike Gibbons. Mike is an investment banker here in Northeast Ohio who ran for the nomination in 2018, losing out to Jim Renacci, who eventually lost to incumbent Senator Sherrod Brown. Mr. Gibbons, thanks for joining us today for The Landscape. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. So let us begin. Let me begin with that campaign in 2018. What did that teach you about being a candidate, and what did you learn about what voters want from the U.S. Senator here in the state of Ohio? Well, it was uh, I was a bit naive when I went into it. Uh, I felt that if we got a lot of acceptance from the voters, that would convince the party that you know maybe I could uh, actually win the race. That wasn't enough, however. It, what I learned is there's a lot of financial engineer, well, political engineering going on in the back room throughout any one of these races. As you may remember in the last election, Josh Mandel was uh, my only opponent of significance the last time and uh, when I joined, and, and I joined late, um, he then dropped out. And uh, at that point, I had worked very hard at, uh, at getting my name out and wandering around the state and, uh, and, and talking to voters. But um, there, was a, there was a desire to get Jim Renacci out of the governor's race because it would clear the way for our governor, now Governor Mike DeWine. And um, they talked Jim into, and actually forced Jim into the Senate race. And um, at that point, anything I did was going to be for naught because they had promised him the endorsement of President Trump, and they had promised him the endorsement of the Ohio party, the state party. And, uh, and they did, did both of those, and, and that doomed me. But I did learn that people like to be told the truth. They like to have the option of voting for a non-politician. And, uh, and I was managed to win 38 counties and 32% of the vote when my first political speech was on December 7th before the May primary. So I'm working much harder this time. I'm, I'm going to more places. I'm, I'm spending more on uh, advertising and media. And we intend to win this. You've promised to hit all 88 Ohio counties. I know you've visited quite a few of them. What are you hearing from voters in rural counties? And is it similar to what you hear from voters who are in more urban counties? Oh, I think their core concerns are the same. Um, you know, generally, particularly at this stage of the campaign, we have a lot of people that are great patriots, that, uh, that care about, uh, about our country, are concerned with the direction our country's going in. And there's not a lot of... Uh, you know, the issue, the issues that come up are really kind of the state issues, you know, in, in the larger cities. And, and, and I have to tell you, uh, I, I probably spent more time on, on smaller and medium size up to, up until now, because you're really a slave to wherever the events are. <laughs> and if the events are there now tonight, we're going to be in Columbus. Um, so I'll be speaking there, but generally they're a little more establishment oriented. They have, uh, you know, they're looking to the party to tell them who's good and who's bad. Whereas uh, outside of the major cities, not so much. You grew up in Parma, and you didn't grow up in a particularly wealthy family. How does that shape your outlook when it comes to politics? Well, I remember where I came from, and uh, you know, my dad. My dad was a high school teacher and a wrestling coach, and and always worked two jobs. Uh, we went through some tough times when I was a little older. You know, I watched my dad and mom struggle financially, and I I decided to change that and. Uh, and I've done that, and I've been very blessed, very fortunate. And uh, 
I frankly, though, I, you know, I like going back to Parma. I, I feel at home there. It's, it was a great place to grow up in. Frankly, we, we were all of a very similar financial capabilities in the city and in, in most of the city, anyhow. And uh, none of us really realized that we weren't uh, didn't have a lot. And I think, I think I didn't know that until I went to high school. Both your father and grandfather were originally Democrats and then switched to the Republican Party. Did they talk to you about why right. they made that switch? Well, my grandfather was actually president of Local 310. Uh, he was a uh, in the construction business. And he, you know, and I, I don't remember a lot of it. He passed when I was in uh, ninth grade. But uh, I do remember him complaining about the, particularly the work roles. He, as you may remember, back in that era, Jackie Presser and a few other union leaders uh, moved toward the Republican Party. My grandfather was one of them. And we didn't talk a lot about politics, but, you know, we were all very happy when John F. Kennedy was uh, was elected. There were no Democrats to speak or Republicans, rather, to speak of in the city of Parma at all. <laughs> so so we were all kind of, uh, you know, in this little bubble. And then my dad really switched uh, during the Carter administration and uh, and he's he never went back. Uh, my entire family pretty much is now uh, solidly Republican. As we mentioned, there is a full field looking to gain the Republican nomination. What makes you more qualified than, than the people that you're running against? Well, what I did find out in the last election, and I'm finding out every day I give a speech here in Ohio, is people are tired of career politicians and political insiders. The kind of engineering that went on in the 2018 election uh, that, that I witnessed, uh, are you know, it sickens most voters. And and so there's some career politicians in this, and, and I think I differentiate myself completely for them. Um, there are also a couple other business people, and, and I believe that we need more business people in office. Um, I believe that we need to have somebody that actually learns something in the private sector and can apply it in Washington. I've done that. You know, I don't think that running for office qualifies you to be sitting with a bunch of relatively sophisticated people in the U.S. Senate negotiating the future of our country. Uh, you don't learn enough running for office to do that. You know, and, and, and I, as a businessman, I, I was not selling hamburgers or I wasn't selling lawnmowers. I was selling myself. Yeah, you know, I started this business with a, uh, a desk and a phone. In Rocky River, Ohio, we eventually moved downtown. We're now one of the largest middle market investment banks in the country, well-known throughout the country and the world. Kind of an irritation when I hear the American dream doesn't uh, exist anymore for anybody because I've lived it. But unlike selling a tangible product, I sell myself. I sell my ideas. I sell trust in me. CEOs and CFOs all over the world have chosen our firm and, and, and myself as, as somebody that they can trust to do maybe the most important transactions they'll ever do in their company's history. I think that sets me apart from virtually every other candidate, from every other candidate. I've sat there and, and convinced for the last 40 years, very sophisticated, successful, many, in many cases, very wealthy people, that my ideas are correct and they can trust me in my judgment. And I think that's a real advantage. You've talked about the American dream and you said one of the things you want to do when you, if you should be elected is to help more people achieve that American dream. So how do we go about doing that? What are some legislative priorities that would allow other people to achieve the same sort of American dream that you have? Yours obviously came with a lot of hard work too, but how do we help people get started? What can the government well, uh, do to help them? You, you, you've said it. Hard work is the, the most important component. 
I think um, you got to be uh, you got to have a decent education, at least in the area that you're trying to build a business in. I, I believe keeping the government out of business as much as possible is is absolutely essential to, to see the kind of growth that uh, that we need to get out of the real fiscal trouble this country's in right now. And I can tell you, uh, you know, we have a deficit now that's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's impossible to sustain this kind of spending. Um, we, we're going to have to grow or we're in serious trouble. And growth is only going to come where the party in charge actually embraces business, embraces the entrepreneur, recognizes that that, that individual that's, that's taking the risk with this company is taking inordinate risk. And the results that they get, they should be, if they get good results, they should be uh, effectively allowed to be compensated for that. You know, we have a tax bill right now before uh, Congress that will really, really hurt small business. You know, most small businesses are pass-throughs, they're LLCs or, or, or sub-Ss, and uh, the individuals in those are taxed as if that business income was their own personal business income. The money that would go to CapEx will be taxed at a very high rate. The, man, the money that will go to hire additional people will be taxed at a, at a very high rate. In each of those cases, we are constraining growth and we will pay for it. This politics of envy that's become kind of the, the ongoing word in almost every case of the Democrat Party is, is, is not good for our country. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren's obsession with not being a wealthy person is, is, is hurting our country. And, you know, if somebody takes that kind of risk, they should be rewarded. Now, I'm not talking about cutting taxes for the, for the people that make. I, I don't have a problem with a progressive income tax structure. You know, I think a flat tax would even be better. We'd have much higher growth. But I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I can live with a progressive tax structure. The problem is, is the narrative on the part of the Democrats is absolutely false. The top 20% of earners in the United States pay 82% of federal income tax. And if you do the math, and 45 to 50% don't pay any income tax, you can see the middle class is not really paying any kind of a fair share, depending on how you want to uh, define it. Now, the problem is, is you need the middle class to win an election. So the narrative is the middle class is getting screwed and the and the the wealthy the elite are are getting are, are cheating everybody and getting by unfairly. How much of the total tax bill can a very small percentage of the nation pay and still be a democracy? Uh, you can't have you know, ten or twenty percent of the population carrying the whole bill. It just it doesn't work long run. You know it's a very dangerous situation. So everybody should share at least to some degree in the tax bill. Mike Gibbons joins us for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We're presented with the support of Weatherhead Executive Education in Case Western Reserve University. I'm Dan Paletta. Mr. Gibbons, we've had a lot of talk during the COVID-19 crisis about a labor shortage. And one of the things we saw is that when wages were increased, it seemed like people took jobs they weren't quite willing to take before. Does that show something? We often heard, well, if you raise wages too high, people, you know, you'll, companies will go out of business. But we haven't seen that as much as a lot of people said that would happen. What do you think about the this increase in wages? Is, is it going to be something that's going to continue as people look for jobs? Well, I think you're conflating two issues here. If the government raises wages, it, it's never going to work. If the government imposes a minimum wage, it would be destructive to the workforce. But during the during the period of time that we've undergone this this burden of COVID, 
um, there is a shortage of wages. And I can tell you uh, a lot of companies have increased, or I'm sorry, there's a shortage of workers. A lot of companies have increased wages, but they've done so either by adjusting their prices or just for the sheer uh, ability to survive the COVID crisis. Uh, I'm not sure how many, how many of those wage increases are going to are going to translate through um, in, when, when COVID is no longer or is, a, is a distant memory. Um, but if they do, and I'm, I always like people uh, to, to have the opportunity to win, earn a living wage. Uh, but if you're going to pay 20 bucks at McDonald's restaurants, you're going to pay more for your Big Mac. It will translate through wage push inflation in, uh, in inflating the prices. The margins, nobody is going to take the risk associated with a business and make zero margin. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just common sense. If you pay more people, more people want to work. If, you're, if you pay people more, more people want to work. It's common sense. That's what's happening right now. You know, the government's paying them not to work. That's been a problem. I think that ends here soon. Uh, and when it ends, I think we'll, uh, you know, we'll fill a lot of those jobs. I think there may have been, uh, you know, a, a real change in attitude that, you know, I'm not going to work if I don't like what I'm doing. I'm not getting paid, you know, at, at the level I expect. So maybe I'm just going to sit at home and hope the government will bail me out. Now that's a license for disaster in our country. But uh, but I, I've heard that reflected from a few people I've run into at restaurants and whatnot. They're going to either pay me or I'm not going to work. Uh, and, uh, and, and that may result in higher wages. But the government coming in and, and saying, thou shall pay $20 an hour uh, will create a real problem. It will drive a lot of businesses out of business. You have said you've supported a lot of President Trump's policies and you'd like to have his endorsement, but you've also said you don't really endorse this notion of a cult of personality. Is the party in danger of falling into that? And what I mean by that is instead of talking about infrastructure or, or military situations, it's becoming a party that looks at President Trump's grievances. And that seems to be the things they concentrate on. Is, is there is there a difficulty there? Well, I think I think, you again, there's two issues there. I think uh, Donald Trump was treated worse than any president in American history by a substantial margin. I don't think the media was ever fair. I think they took falsehoods and expanded them beyond even everybody's wildest dreams. There, there was, you know, false claims constantly. This man was under siege. I don't know if there's a man tough enough in the world I could point to that could have taken what he did. Now, with all that said, I care about America. Now, Donald Trump did a lot of good things for this country, but he, he didn't gain the acceptance of a good piece of it. And we, we're going to, we're going to need to have him do that, or we're going to have to find somebody that can do it right now. The important things to the left wing, the, the left wing of the D Democrat party are, are destructive of this country. And, and we're going to have to, you know, coalesce behind one candidate. I'm, I hope it's Donald Trump, but I hope there's a path for him to have four more years. But if there isn't, we've got to find somebody to replace him that still has the kind of attitude of America first that he had and, and maybe can win enough votes to win the election. So I'm more frightened for the future of the Republican Party uh, if, if we do just find importance in, in his personality. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think everybody realizes uh, you know, my wife's a good example of that. Uh, you know, if I if I ever said, boy, I wish you wouldn't have said that, she'll say, you know, this guy's under siege every day by everybody. That's the only way he can uh, he can fight back. 
maybe that'll uh, maybe the the news and media will get the idea that they've they've created great destruction for this country by the way they've reported. I don't know. What's what's important is that America is first. That that this country uh, fix the things that need to be fixed. Uh, I don't think we need an expanded social net. I think we need an expanded opportunity. When it comes to the infrastructure bill, you've said you support parts of it, but not all of it. So where, where are the places you differ from the administration on, on that bill? Well, I think anybody that uh, has a brain recognizes we need infrastructure. Uh, but the Democrat Party's redefined infrastructure to include all sorts of uh, utopia-based uh, uh, liberal wish list items that, that I don't think uh, are important, particularly at this juncture in our country's economic history. Our situation right now is that we have a very fragile economy, and, uh, and what we ought to do is the things we need. Now, I've been in, f- in finance my whole life, spent an early part of my early career in public finance. Believe me, I, I understand how public-private partnerships and how governments uh, need to finance things. And the one thing that, that is always true is that if you have a long-term asset like a road or a bridge, I have no problem borrowing the money over the period of life of that bridge uh, or, that, or that road. So I don't have a problem going out and have the government borrowing money for real assets. I have problems with the government borrowing money for things that are going to become part of entitlements um, that reflect, again, this, this leftist vision of how this country should work this sort of uh, quasi-European social welfare state that, that hasn't worked in Europe and, and, and continues to fail in Europe. I, I think we need to fight that. We need to provide people with equal opportunity. And the way to do that is keep the government out of it. Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky endorsed you. He said, Mike Gibbons is a liberty-minded fiscal and constitutional conservative who will stand up for our Bill of Rights and to stop our endless wars, which leads us to the subject of Afghanistan. Yes. Do we need to stay longer in Afghanistan, or is it the issue of how we pull out of the country? Was is that where your is that where your problem is? Um, tired? I think everybody was was tired of Afghanistan, and rightfully so. You know, the the we spent an awful lot of money there. Interesting fact: one of my classmates of the, at St. Ignatius High School was the uh, Inspector General for Afghanistan. You know, in our interactions with him, I think. We all recognize how much money was was wasted in that country. Uh, the numbers I've heard is as much as 40% of it was stolen, uh, went to fraud, payoffs, all that sort of thing. Projects that were never completed. Uh, I, I think everybody's tired of that. I don't. I have a son that's a, a, a helicopter pilot in the Navy. You know, I worry every day given what I've seen from this administration as far as military leadership goes. I don't think they get it. You know, the whole Afghanistan exit was completely mishandled, almost to the point, well, not to the point, it it was dereliction of duty in my mind. But I will tell you, you could also make a case to keep some residual force there. There hasn't been anybody killed in Afghanistan, and one is, one anytime is too many, but since February 2020, you know, we've kept residual forces elsewhere. The big problem here was that we pulled our promise of air cover to the Afghan forces. And when we did that, and Joe Biden did it, when we did that, they were incapable of, of defending the country. And, and that's why it fell as quickly as it did. At least that's my understanding. And, uh, and I can tell you, I think we could have done a much better job of exiting. I don't think we had to give them $80 billion worth of, of, of military equipment. And I don't think 13 of our 
American soldiers should have had to die in that mess. So I, I think I can make a case to keep a residual force, but I'm also very okay with, uh, with, with leaving them to their own devices and getting out entirely. I would have gotten us out much differently. I would have gotten us out without loss of life. I would have gotten us out without leaving the town. You know, when, when Joe Biden says uh, make, build back better, I didn't think he was talking about the Taliban, and that's what he's done. Before we go, I would just quickly like to ask you about that issue of, of corruption in Afghanistan. And, and you mentioned the air cover. I've talked to some of the other candidates about this. I mean, it seems like everyone was taken by surprise at how quickly the Afghan army folded. Let's say we left air covered there another two months. And then we said um, in October, we're going to have to remove the air cover. Don't they still just right. fold like they did before? Well, I, you know, Trump had set May 1st as the date. Obviously, the Biden administration did nothing to prepare between the time he took office in January through that May date uh, and started, it looked like they started preparing a couple days before they decided to shut it down, to be honest. Uh, you, you know, to, to pull the military out when, when you're trying to, to get a lot of American citizens and certainly people who have been loyal to, loyal to America that will in the future be in danger from, from the Taliban. If you're trying to pull tens of thousands of these people out, you don't, you don't take the military out first. It's pretty common sense, I think. Uh, I think we'll see that. We'll have hearings on that, and that will come uh, to the forefront. I'm not sure who who pulled the trigger on on the almost childlike exit from that from that country, uh, but we'll find out eventually. I think if the media will allow it to be disseminated to the American people, you know, we have to have better control when we go in into a situation like this. I don't believe in these endless wars. I don't think we can nation build. I think people aren't giving enough credit to. The fact that this country has thousands of years of a completely different culture, and we just think that uh, you know they're going to be going to the voting booths uh, like we do on on voting day and in uh, voting for in a democratic fashion for for a leader. I don't think that that's going to happen in these countries, and, uh, and we ought to give up on it and just make sure that our interests are protected and our country's safe. Michael Gibbons, thanks so much for joining us today for The Landscape. We appreciate you sharing some time and talking about some of these very important issues that are going to be coming up in this Senate race. Well, thanks for having me. Michael Gibbons is one of the candidates running for the Republican nomination for the United States Senate. As Senator Ron Portman steps down, he joined us for The Landscape, a Crane's Cleveland podcast. We are presented with support of Weatherhead Executive Education at Case Western Reserve University. We have our producer, Cody Smith. I'm Dan Paletta. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk again soon.